This is Judaism Unbound, episode 35, Twice Blessed. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're here today in the third episode of our four-episode arc on what Jewish looks like today, moving to think about sexual orientation and gender identity and the ramifications of uh, greater openness to Jews of sexual orientations and gender identities, which have not been at the center of the uh, understanding of Judaism of itself over the time of its evolution and, and how that should be taken into account today and what such Jews are doing today to create space for themselves, create new institutions, influence old ones, and and we're excited to have here Rabbi Joshua Lesser of Congregation Beit Haverim in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a synagogue that describes itself as a reconstructionist synagogue founded by lesbians and gay men, embracing all Jews and loved ones. In addition to that, Rabbi Lesser was the rabbi that uh, got Sandra Lawson, our guest from last week, involved in Judaism for the first time. And so I think it's an interesting uh, connection across episodes that we haven't uh, quite had in the same way yet uh, until today. So, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really Really excited to have you with us on Judaism Unbound. I'm thrilled to be here and I'm really excited to be part of such an important conversation. Well, thanks. So we thought that just getting started as part of this series looking at, at different kinds of Jews that are sort of not the uh, kinds of Jews that used to get thought of as the Jews 50, 100 years ago, whatever, you know, and looking at the LGBT experience as part of that. I was hoping that you could just kind of get us started, you know, both maybe in terms of your personal journey, but also your reflections on the LGBT experience in American Judaism over the last, you know, X years. If you could just sort of walk us through the the history of that. I mean, obviously, that's a huge question, but, uh, the whole, you know, we're really just, uh, I, I feel like in some ways the LGBT experience has been a, a kind of a, a long one and one that actually, I don't know, at least in an outsider's view, seems to be uh, uh, nearing a, a positive place. And, and I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through that whole arc. You know, in some ways, I love that I was born shortly after the Stonewall Rebellion, because I feel like my personal life and the arc that we kind of understand as LGBT civil rights in our country um, have been simultaneously. So I feel my life really parallels that experience. And so I'll start with the personal, because I think that that's really helpful and grounds a little bit of what my perspective is. I grew up here in Atlanta, Georgia, which I now have the privilege of serving a congregation back in Atlanta. And I grew up going to Orthodox Day School all the way through um, middle school. And then I ended up going to a different private school at that point. But Judaism was incredibly important to me. And I had different kind of wanderings and wonderings as a child of whether I was going to become Orthodox. There was a time where I was telling my parents I wanted to be Hasidic. Um, but there was really something about having a Jewish day school experience that was really powerful for me. So much of my love of Judaism was formed really early. And so when we began to learn the um, Levitical laws, you know, I remember very clearly when I was in seventh grade um, looking at the laws of homosexuality and not knowing who I was in any kind of concrete way, but also recognizing that something really um, terrible and important was being communicated to me. And there was this kind of kernel of what was so important to me. How how was this going to, to move forward? And there's this funny anecdote. Like, I, I think that I kind of acted up 
um, shortly after, because right after that, of course, you know, the, the laws around bestiality are also in the same text. And, you know, in our country for a long time, um, people who have been against LGBT civil rights often make this bestiality um, connection. And so it was certainly connected in my Jewish education. And so, you know, when we were told about the prohibitions um, of relationships with animals, I raised my hand, I'm typically a pretty good kid, and my teacher called on me and um, she said, um, do you have a question? And I said, yeah, I'm wondering, does this even apply for goldfish? And um, the whole class broke out in laughter, and um, even, she wanted to get angry, but even she started laughing. And um, I think that was my way of just marking that moment of this is really something has happened here, and could have done it in a in what was a playful way, but I think it was really important. Um, and so when I <clears throat> When I went on to college and I started coming out, one of my biggest um, existential crises was both my familial, which was a Jewish crisis, and my spiritual, which was a Jewish crisis. Both of these, like, would my family accept me? Would my community accept me? But really went into a very deep depression around, I thought I was going to have to leave everything that I loved. And Towards the beginning of college, I ended up going into a bookstore, and there was a reading from a book called Twice Blessed. And um, that has had oh such gosh. a profound effect for Jewish communities um, everywhere, in, in, in a lot of ways, for that conversation to be reframed in a way that, there are two, that this is a blessing and not a curse, profoundly shook me to my core. It allowed me to continue with some connection Jewishly. I became the president of my Hillel at Northwestern, where um, I knocked heads with my rabbi um, virtually every day. And at this point, I wasn't fully aware of the few rabbis, so this is the early 90s, of the few rabbis who were kind of taking their first strides or who were in school learning. It was pretty isolated. And <clears throat> the other LGBT Jewish folks that I knew, you know, uh, were gathering in, in small communities. And they tended to be people who had a really strong love of Yiddishkeit and of Jewish um, learning and um, culture and wanting to kind of find a way to retain it. And so while I found my way to the Gay and Lesbian Synagogue in Chicago a few times while I was a student. It really didn't speak to me as a young person. So I was like, that's not my community. That's not my community. Um, and so there was, there was a, a long period of wandering. It wasn't until I did Teach for America in New Orleans and really had this experience that has also helped me understand kind of the American Jewish landscape. I went to every single synagogue as a 21-year-old kid in New Orleans trying to find a place to support just my Jewish existence while I was doing some really challenging work. And not a single person talked to me at any of those um, congregations. Not only gave, I only gave them one shot at that point in my life, but, um, but no, literally not a single person um, spoke to me. And so I ended up hosting Jewish events in my home for other Teach for America um, Jewish core members. And that kind of gave me a little bit more confidence. And so 
when I came back to visit uh, my family in Atlanta, it was around Hanukkah time, and I had heard about Beit Haverim. And at this point, I'm more fully out, not out to my parents, not out to the larger community, but here was this group of folks in Atlanta. Um, and so the congregation was founded in 1985. So this is less than 10 years in its existence. They're meeting in a small place, um, celebrating Hanukkah. And um, so when I went to Yeshiva High School, is leading the service. So that was like this wonderful thing to see. And she announces at the end of the service that she had just gotten into rabbinical school. And again, it was this other moment where all of a sudden all the wheels started turning in my head. And I was like, I need to, I, I need to pursue this. And that because there were so few, I didn't have a single role model. And at this time, I don't think there were many out role models that I really decided that I wanted to be part of the group of people who are making some significant change um, on behalf of LGBT Jews and the larger community, because I really believe um, that we all benefit. And so at this point, you know, um, some of the gay and lesbian congregations um, in other parts of the United States, you know, their emergings in the late 70s, early 80s. And I would say by the mid-80s and 90s, more and more gay and lesbian congregations started popping up. And even though we often refer ourselves as LGBT communities, in many cases, and certainly I can speak best about the community here in Atlanta, our community is at best incorporated by sexual folks um, tangentially and rarely incorporated transgender folks really well in our very beginnings. And I say that because I think it talks about some of the challenges that, that we end up having now. But these communities um, were just beginning to start networking with each other so that there was some kind of a sense of a movement. Because um, initially, it was really done independently. And what starts happening, I believe, in the 80s, we start beginning affiliating with movements or making really clear stands about n not affiliating. And it's because the movements are themselves changing and beginning to recognize that there are these congregations and communities and they need some support. So when the reform movement and the reconstructionist movement open themselves up in a way to um, accept communities, that became really important. <clears throat> but it didn't happen without a deep sense of conversation and fracture. And one of the things that's really important is <clears throat> even when large communities like like a movement have to make these decisions, they don't always put into place the um, policies and procedures and strategies to make sure that these communities are welcomed and can fully participate. So even in the midst of our quote-unquote integration into the larger Jewish community, no one is really helping the larger Jewish community at that time um, prepare for what to do well. So <clears throat> here in Atlanta, when our synagogue wanted to join what at that time Federation was hosting a um, synagogue and president's council, um, Beit Haverim asked if they could join. Originally, they said no. You don't have a rabbi. When they hired their first um, ordained rabbi, 
the synagogue asked if they could apply again. And um, they were invited in to kind of talk about why they should be accepted. They were told that they that the congregation needed to drop its tagline as being a synagogue serving uh, the gay and lesbian community. And um, the, the synagogue said no, they wouldn't. And so there was a big debate. And as Atlanta legend goes, um, the many of the conservative rabbis said that they would leave the synagogue council if Beit Chavarim was invited in. And some of our um, reform allies said they would leave if we were not, and the synagogue council disbanded and has never been put back into place. And then what happened for many years, like when I arrived, which was until 99, we were left off of invitations for Israel rallies. Um, We were listed in the Shalom Atlanta guide under other rather than reconstructionist. And, you know, there were many ways where both intentionally and unintentionally, we were um, slighted. And I would say that in 1996, when the Olympics came to Atlanta and there was the Atlanta bombing, the bombings that happened here, including a lesbian nightclub, um, you know, our community held a special service. Nobody from the larger Jewish community in 96 stood as allies. Contrast that to when the um, LGBT community center, um, there was the attack in Tel Aviv um, a handful of years ago. Uh, We held a service in solidarity with them, and the Israeli consulate was there. A number of synagogues came. An Orthodox rabbi, you know, um, wrote something to be read. Uh, You know, and so... Already, like, that is a moment of, like, we'll stand in solidarity with you about 10 years later um, was powerful. And the kind of changes that you've alluded to are, um, you know, have in some ways felt long, um, long and, and, and hard earned. And other ways, there's been some swift change. You know, I don't know if my experience is is in any way representative, but I think that you and I are around the same age. And when I was in college, I was the president of the Hillel. And, you know, again, this was the time when when really the idea that our peers were coming out was was a new experience for, for many of us. But I feel that at least in the Jewish community on campus, the response was one that that largely said, "Oh, that's that's fine," you know. And um, and when there were uh, anti-gay and lesbian activities on campus, it just sort of seemed obvious to me that, of course, we should stand against those things because wasn't that what Judaism was all about? And it sort of never really even occurred to me that you know we should in any way not be. Uh, not be on the same side, and you know, and and I realized that that you know obviously wasn't something that was so obvious, but it's felt almost generationally that it it was in in our world of college students, and then you know sort of later when um, I lived in in Minneapolis and the you know, sort of closest synagogue that was to our liking was a uh, LGBT-founded synagogue. We we joined that synagogue without really almost a second thought. And so I wonder if if you find that too, and if the story really is one of the folks that are sort of our age and younger uh, is a different world than than the folks that are our age or older, or or that really hasn't been your experience. You know, it's... It's interesting. I mean, I definitely have seen that experience. That wasn't the case for me at Northwestern. As the president of Hillel, and we ended up having these dating nights, we would never have conceived about including 
gay and lesbian folks in that model. Mm-hmm. It was really, this is a place for nice Jewish boys to meet nice Jewish girls. And I think those kinds of changes, like the social changes, not the political changes, those took a lot longer. Where I imagine now that there are Hillels today that are thinking about wanting um, there, to, there to be comfort around um, people being able to meet friends and you know potential dating partners of all orientations, um, and, you know, as part of the Jewish umbrella. I want to pick up on two, I think, related topics that you uh, brought into your story and into this story. One was your background as having come from an Orthodox education, not necessarily an Orthodox family, but that you were somehow uh, deeply rooted and deeply educated in Judaism. And the other is the Um, founding of gay and lesbian synagogues as sort of separate entities, right, as opposed to um, a movement, let's say a protest movement within the Jewish community to um, open existing Jewish institutions to greater inclusivity or something like that. Not that none of that was happening, but it's striking to me that um, that there was a, a whole a whole a whole wave of founding of, of gay and lesbian synagogues. And and so I'm exploring these questions of of, you know, should we be looking to um, folks that are, you know, alienated for some reason, but that have this kind of very deep background like you had as the potential leaders of of changes or or are you just one kind and there were actually a number of different kinds of leaders of this movement you know and and number two is really just this question of why was the move to establish separate synagogues and as opposed to you know some other kind of uh, way of trying to get in it's interesting i think that the what makes this an even more complicated question is that the nature of synagogues have also changed in this period of time and so I feel like that there are a number of different axes to talk about, and so that what a synagogue was serving back in, in, in a time where the world was potentially more hostile to Jews and that there really needed to be a high level of um, social support and connection that isn't necessarily the same today. Um, part of me wonders some of, of the applicability, but you know what I'm aware of is, is that there is both... Well, I do think that the this desire, and I do feel like it was the predominant desire to start separate institutions, came from two places that are related. <clears throat> One is that maybe they're the same coin, just two different sides. One is that those of us with traditional backgrounds, and, and even societally, the messages that we received from the Jewish community and from the larger society was that being gay was at best dangerous and at worst completely antithetical to what it was to be a Jew. Like it was just defined as outside, which is why, you know, this idea of Rabbi Dr. Rebecca Alpert's book, like Bread on a Seder Plate, that talks about lesbian Judaism, it was like bread on the Seder Plate. Like that was the apt metaphor. Like they two should not exist together are the messages. So when you do that, you're like, wait, no, that they should. You automatically think outside, like I'm going to. But then the other piece was really about safety. So when I think about the community here, when you look at our old directories, our first directories, people only put their last initial. So like people did not even want their full names associated with the synagogue because they were afraid of what the repercussions were 
to be associated. There are stories where people talk about making sure that the blinds were closed in the places where they were holding services so as not to be seen or parking further away. So there's, there are these very deep concerns of safety that we don't um, have to always think about um, today. That gets at something I've been thinking about as this conversation's been rolling. So it started when you brought up the book Twice Blessed. The, the idea that Twice Blessed's title implies is that it's this that the queer part and the Jewish part are both blessings. They're both actively good. Um, and it's not just, and I would, I would say from that, that um, as you've alluded to in some of your discussion so far, it's not just about you know, how can the Jewish community accommodate LGBTQ folks? But I'm curious the extent to which um, you it, it might also be the case that LGBTQ people can, in positive ways, shift the very nature of what we think of Judaism to be itself. So, like, I guess the summary question that I ask is sort of what is that second blessing that LGBTQ communities can and individuals can bring um, that's more than just, you know, the community can be open to them, but that they could really bring themselves to sort of alter Judaism as we know it in a positive way. No, I really appreciate that question. For a long time, I have joked that um, our synagogue became straight welcoming. Because uh, <laughs> Because there is something that often feels patronizing about, oh, we're welcoming gay and lesbian people, as if the center is right. you know, making this right. accommodation rather than saying, we belong here together. And, you know, sorry, we've been late. Um, in, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, I've wanted to flip the language to sometimes highlight those kinds of discrepancies and how it still holds the same, the same message. So on, on one hand, I, one of the reasons why, and I know that, you know, I don't use it intentionally to offend people and it can sometimes offend other LGBT listeners, but I identified as queer in my 20s and it's still um, often a word that I will use because there's something wonderful about um, being queer. I ended up getting into a large argument with a um, this is when I first arrived with a very established um, conservative rabbi who had been here for decades. And, you know, he was both very upset that I would even consider using the word queer because I was insulting myself and that I would use the word straight because it was implying um, that I was complimenting him. I mean, it was just this very weird kind of conversation. And I was trying to explain what are the blessings about being queer Lots of teachers, I think that you know Rabbi Bene Lappi is just an extraordinary example about what i what I'm about to say is is that there is a way to that when you are queer that you are able to easily see the ways that Torah is subversive, and to being able to hold up the subversiveness of Torah ends up creating I'll use the word portals, like creates portals into the tradition to be able to look and get information in a different way. I, I, I have always had this fantasy, like I, I think as someone who's now been invited to enough of what I, people might imagine to be the center of Jewish life, I think it's a lot more fun at the margins. 
I, I, you know, I, I think that they're just different experiences and that the margins are wonderfully creative and celebratory places where I would love for to be able to bring some people to the margins and say, there's a little bit of liberation here, that part of the blessing is a liberating sense of authenticity. And I want that for all people. And when we're able to be much more rooted in our own sense of authenticity, like the spiritual gift of who we are, then the idolatry that we create in our communities don't matter as much. The truth is, it can be really boring in that center, whatever that center is, quote unquote. And, um, and I would love to bring them a little bit more life and engagement, and they don't have to be so scared. I, I mean, that's the piece that I sometimes find. And I don't want that to sound pretentious, but I sometimes find that there's a, there's a fear. The last thing I want to say about this is that one of the most powerful gifts that we've brought the straight folks of our community, and I would never have guessed this in a million years, is a prayer that we say that originally came from Shar Zahav in San Francisco. It's not a prayer that they do anymore. It has been with us near our inception. We say it every Friday night. It's called the prayer for the end of hiding. And it talks about wanting to be able to end the hiding and being able to fully claim one's gay and lesbian and Jewish identities so that we can be as fully creative and self-expressed as possible. Straight folks have said that prayer has changed their life because the truth is there are, all, there are parts of all of us that are in hiding. And if there's a way where we can move into different conversations and be more accepting of ourselves and, and that what happens from a gay perspective, even claim those and celebrate those differences – that ends up being the kind of excitement on the margins that I think all of Judaism could be injected with. So we've talked a lot about these twin ideas of the margins and the center. And, and we've actually done a little bit of that on, on past episodes of the show, too. And in this particular context, I think it gets at an issue that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And it's, it's normativity. And, and specifically, maybe in, in our case, as we're talking about the LGBT context, um, the, the, the space of heteronormativity um, and cisnormativity, ter- terms that people might not be f- familiar with. And I'll, um, but we're, uh, uh, it seems to me that a lot of what we're talking about in terms of being fully accepted, fully empowered in the world of Judaism, in institutions, in, in Judaism as and ism even, um, is this idea that you're not necessarily an outsider, that, that you're one of the team. And, and so you alluded um, to this issue of the dating event in college where it would have been unthinkable to propose that it would be both male-female couples and, and also male-male, female-female couples. Um, we didn't even talk about the trans issues that would come up there too but um i'd i'd love to, i'd love to hear how how you see this normativity question playing out in in jewish spaces and on as part one sort of what people can do to fix that and on a second level sort of what what the implications of a world where that normativity doesn't exist would be part of what makes me effective is, is that i understand some things about normativity so that when i counsel um, a straight couple around marriage, 
I see some of the pitfalls that gender normativity creates for them. Um, and that the way that gay and lesbian folks set up their households or the way that trans folks can offer new insights about gender um, ends up liberating everyone. And so in some ways, like who I am as a queer rabbi is an asset. Um, and it just means that I have another um, lens or perspective to be able to, to offer insight that my blind spots are different than a number of my straight colleagues might be. With Judaism still being so constructed around the family unit, by putting so much energy and so much focus and so much of our resources there, that is one of the normativity um, touch points that isolates and alienates many other folks who have either chosen not to have kids, who can't have kids. Um, and, and it's one of the things that there's going to be, there's a split in the LGBT community where there are people who, you know, now that we have a whole lot more civil rights and we have the right to marriage, there is a clear avenue towards normativity and that we're going to set up our lives and look like every other couple. And and I want and I fought for that access for folks. But because I wanted and fought for that access for folks, and that's been a strong part of my rabbinate, I feel just as committed of creating other avenues and other pathways for other folks so that to have our communities be really robustly adult communities and engage people on our level and on an adult level of creativity and things that aren't dependent upon what kind of parent we want to be, to be able to offer something that's counter to that culture that really engages and tells adults your spiritual lives, your cultural lives, these are really important and we want to provide these for you. We want to speak to who you are separate from your identity as a spouse or as a parent. That's I would say the most significant thing that I think Judaism fails um, in terms of, it's not that we don't have some of that. It's just that if you looked at things proportionally, I think we would find that so much of it still goes to this model of working with people who have kids and then really gearing it towards kids. So the critiques that came out in the 90s of Judaism being, being a pediatric religion to me still ring true in a lot of our institutions. That's one thing. And the other piece I want to say is, is that, you know, I have met so many more non-normative folks by engaging in, in what Christians would call public theology. So when I'm engaged at a rally or when I am um, involved in working on pre-rest uh, diversion programs, representing who I am as a Jew and working, I'm working with transgender folks on the pre-arrest diversion, which is a cause that transgender folks, particularly transgender folks of color, have been forwarding here in Atlanta. The fact that I'm there as a rabbi has opened up so many more possibilities and opportunities to meet folks. People are curious about Judaism, people um, who are just seeking, people who want pastoral care, people who have um, reflections for me to, 
to think about in terms of how community exists, the way that these support systems have developed in a subversive, really interesting way. I mean, for me, there's this whole other place of ideas that happens in non-normative space that who shows up in non-normative space. There's a lot more comfort in, in these places and in these spaces for it to be engaged with folks. And there I find it to be, you know, less scripted, l- less having to um, engage in the same kinds of typical pro forma kinds of conversations. And people really engage deeply about their lives. And that feels really important. You know, that's, that's what I want to be doing as a rabbi. I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit about the experience of, of gay and lesbian Jews in particular and their story uh, that you told on other kinds of Jews that we're talking about in our show a lot or, or non-Jews, right, that we're potentially looking at. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of, um, for example, you know, when we think about the um, LGBT Jews who have um, been part of this story of the LGBT synagogues, I would imagine at least the majority of them are ones who, you know, if you did like the Pew study on them, they would kind of come out as um, pretty similar to any other Jew, except that because they're gay or lesbian, they were excluded from the communities. And so so they tried to be included or made synagogues, you know, but then there are all these other gay and lesbian Jews that, um, you know, are atheists or whatever, you know, somehow didn't, um, weren't looking for synagogues, but may be looking for some other expression of Judaism. And, and maybe this story uh, doesn't serve them. So, I mean, we're talking about a subset of the you know LGBT community, but of course, we're also talking about many uh, non-LGBT Jews that, um, you know, don't, don't fit into the Jewish community. Um, for various reasons. And, and also among them, they're probably, in fact, we know, you know, for example, from the ultra-Orthodox community, for sure, there's a lot of people who have very significant Jewish backgrounds like you and I did and, um, you know, and, and are these potential leaders of, of, of something else, right? Something that might work for those folks. And then there's this whole other world of fellow travelers who are non-Jews, uh, whether they're members of our families or um, friends or people around us and um, or or maybe potential fellow travelers who are non-Jews. And, and I'm wondering in our uh, in, in this part of our conversation, are, are there thoughts that you have on on all of those folks that that may grow out of the experience of uh, LGBT Jews over the last 30 years? From conversations that end up happening in the synagogue. Um at a particular point, there were, we were trying to determine whether we were going to be a community that um, solely served the LGBT community. And, I, you know, part of it came, I, I think, as we were talking before about this desire for, you know, is this the right place for the boundary? And, and alongside were even questions like, should we just reserve that the president had to be gay and lesbian um, in order to preserve certain kinds of authenticity. And, you know, one of the things that I said then, and I didn't realize how prescient it would be, is is that making a different choice. And and I was clear with them that if they wanted to go that route, that was really a fine route to go. And I've supported it, but it was not the route for me. And I said that I, I want to build a community that solely, that so believes in the repair of the world, that we believe that we have something to offer. And so 
when I think about, we had a Pride Seder this past June, and I think about those words then, we had our queer teens lead the service. And those teens brought their other LGBTQ teen friends to both participate, um, including Christians and Muslims who came. And um, and for them, it was the for many of them, it was the first time of being in a religious space where they were completely accepted for who they are. And you know, on one hand, will that have planted a seed down the road for someone who is searching that maybe Judaism might be an option for them? Possibly. But what I hope even more so is is that it showed people what they might be able to demand from their communities. Let's say that you are a rabbi of a gay and lesbian founded synagogue, you know what you are, and and a number of, let's say, Jews of color come and and say that, you know, they want to participate. And of course, you would say you're you're more than welcome and this is your community, etc. But would you also think that there's something to be said that maybe you should also found your own community as well, or maybe within this community to to encourage the creation of I don't know what we'd call them, interest groups or something like how how might we retain the creative power that came out of the time that the gay and lesbian community spent creating its own institutions, right? That's the part that I'm sort of wondering how we can harness that great creative power. And like you say, the moving of the center to the margins, as opposed to by inviting people in so so completely that we might accidentally never move the center away from when it needs to be. And how do we do that without causing people pain? You know, how do obviously people shouldn't be used as means to an end, but how do we balance these goals? I'm so appreciative of that question. And that, and that feels really crystal clear. One of the things that I'm interested in doing and that I try to do is introduce Jews of color to each other so that they have a sense of empowerment. And that's not just within my synagogue, because, you know, I think ultimately here in Atlanta, that a way for this community to exert some kind of agency and desire is for them to be able to be in community with each other to talk about what their visions are and what their multiple needs are. Because I, I don't imagine, you know, when I look at my experience as a, um, as a queer man, it wasn't always the same as other folks. So I don't, don't want to make the mistake of saying they're going to be able to speak with one voice. So I think that to be able to create, and we're actually in the process of this, that there has been some conversation of creating a group. And the conversation has been, will it be a group that is confined to the synagogue or will it be a community group? And, um, and I really actually want to empower people to make that decision for themselves. Is it the case that the current reality of gay and lesbian founded synagogues is that the majority have either disbanded in because people were welcomed into other synagogues and people went there and also and then the ones that have remained have have become uh very open to straight people and therefore are more like you say gay and lesbian founded synagogues or is there some other process going on today here in atlanta early on i founded something called the rainbow center which federation funded in, in its beginning and we worked with Jewish Family and Career Services as our fiscal sponsor, and then we became Sojourn, 
which is the Southern Jewish Resource Network for Gender and Sexual Diversity. We've actually gone into synagogues to help them become more welcoming to LGBT folks. And and so at some point somebody asked me, Wait, are, are you trying to put your own congregation out of business? And um, And ultimately, I want LGBT Jews to have the choice that makes sense to them. We are very much a Reconstructionist congregation. And so I'm invested in the conservative movement being as welcoming in the reform movement. And I believe in a culture of abundance. And so ultimately, I want us to be values-based organizations as much as I want us to be identity-based organizations. And that we are stronger as a synagogue because we have shared values, visions, and missions than we would be if we are just based on our identity. Um, and so we were very strategic. And I, I believe we are the only gay-founded synagogue where we still is a strong part of who our identity is, but we are not the, we're not in the majority. I think we're the only synagogue where we're not in the majority. And we haven't been in the majority for many, many years. So it's not just that other synagogues have been welcoming, but that the need to be in gay-only space is changing. Gay bars are ceasing to be as relevant as they used to be. A lot of things in terms of its exclusivity and also because of technology that people can get what they need in many, many different ways. So I ultimately think that um, that it's a hybrid. You know, It's the nexus of being a community that's looking at the at the needle and at what it needs to do. I think Shar Zahav is a, in, a, in San Francisco is in a really interesting place at, in this moment of really needing to make some decisions. Shar Zahav, I think, is the synagogue that's most like us because we both founded Hebrew schools at the same time. So they've been, they're decades old now. They're over a decade old each. And so it means that we've been able to serve more of that normative model that we were talking about before in powerful ways. And so it opens us up. They have not opened up as much, but I think that they, when they look at their future, they're at a, they're at a precipice, I think, or a watershed moment, perhaps, in, in order to make some decisions about their future and their longevity. And, um, and I think here... Uh, we still even see, even though synagogues have been welcoming, how we create something that is distinct and unique um, from from the other communities. Uh, so that there is still a way that we are who we are differently. And that, I think, will be the beauty of these choices. And I think there will be less of us. And I think that there will also be organizations like Nehirim was, where we'll be offering experiences for LGBT Jews to get together and have different kinds of connection, but it will be in limited kinds of pockets rather than as an entire identity-based institution. Did you have any any closing thoughts um, that we haven't been able to touch on in the conversation thus far that you wanted to bring up? Part of the evolution of the Jewish community's relationship with LGBT Jews and LGBT people has really helped the Jewish community become a better community. It has allowed us to embrace our families more honestly and authentically. There have been ways where people of all orientations and all gender diversities have been able to be more authentic. And that, in my opinion, is what's best for the community. And I think it is that same tendency 
of when we can continue to to reach out and reach in of um, folks who have been marginalized, whether it's through economic diversity, whether it's still interfaith couples, whether it is Jews of color or multi-ethnic family. Like if, if we can build on our tendencies to claim our own and embrace them, we're going to be enriched as a community. Well, thank you. It was really an amazing experience talking to you over this time. And uh, we're so grateful to you for, for coming on and sharing this perspective on Judaism Unbound. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the uh, amazing stewards that the both of you are and uh, how you both curate and cultivate really important conversations and ultimately, I think, um, important ideas for our community. Thank you so much, Rabbi Lesser, for those kind words and for joining us for a great episode. Uh, we want to close out the episode, as always, by encouraging you, our listeners, to be in touch with us. And there's a number of ways for you to do that. First is you can like our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And, of course, you can send us emails at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And last but not least, we always want to remind folks that they can make a small monthly donation through our Patreon account, and you can access that at www.patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Judaism Unbound. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>